Welcome to Evolution Recruitment Podcast, where we have a melting pot of ideas and thought leaders with us today to share their views on the current market. Today with me, I've got Aaron from Contour and Junhao from Subira. So just to take note that this podcast is not financial advice. Everything that we discuss is just our own personal opinion. Want to give a brief introduction to yourself, Junhao? Um, yeah, sure. I'm Junhao. I'm the CEO of Subira. Um, basically, it's a startup that is focused on the crypto payment space. Uh, we're trying to build uh, a pool-based payment layer whereby anyone can uh, receive payments uh, with crypto uh, very easily. Yeah. All right. Hi, yeah, my name is Aaron Seabrook. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Contour. Uh, Contour again is a fintech based here in Singapore and what we're looking to do is digitize the trade finance processes. So historically that's been a hugely manual operation for both banks and corporates and we're here to try and transform that. Amazing. These are, I think, two new purpose that's utilizing blockchain technology and no one has been doing this. So they're solving a real world problem here. And today we'll be talking about hiring challenges within blockchain. And I think within the tech industry, we've seen tons of layoffs in the traditional markets, you know, and the blockchain industry is not spared as well. Yeah. You know, with the uh, stigma going around FTX, you know, Luna, Celsius, 3ACs, all this stigma around us. It's not a very lucrative time to join <laughs> blockchain as compared to one year ago. But then again, we would like to talk about the hiring challenges and how we can attract talents in that sense. Right. Um, so having this kind of layoffs, what's your sentiment on the, on the market in general? I don't think it's just the blockchain space that's experiencing a correction now. If you look across the industry, you know, big firms, Microsoft, Google, Meta, etc. They're all sort of doing this correction post-COVID. I think people were expecting digitization just to continue its huge trajectory that's happened over the past four or five years. But I think as the economy is slowing down, people are making those corrections. I just think that people saw blockchain as the nascent technology, they probably made those corrections quicker. Uh, and also in terms of what's happening with you know tokens and some of the sort of more systemic issues in some of those organizations that sort of spiraled out of control into the blockchain space. But I don't think it's just limited to that. I think we're going to continue to see challenges this year. Yeah. What yeah. about yourself? Of course, um, if you look at the interest rate environment right now, it's so high. So for these companies that are surviving on VC funds, um, just basically doesn't make sense to for the VC to continue to sponsor them because the real return that they have to earn above and beyond the interest rate currently is just way beyond what normal startups would be really. Right. Um, that extends to Meta or the becoming as well. Does not make sense and, um, to continue at their pace of hiring, the pace of their compensation. So I, I guess correction is much needed. Um, I, I guess um, this should continue quite for quite a while until Jerome Powell decides to do his <laughs> pivot, not too sure when, hopefully soon for us, <laughs> but um, yeah. So unfortunately, I don't think this is going to uh, stop for the next one, one, one or so year. But of course, uh, for the blockchain industry, it's not going anywhere. Um, there's been so many cycles. Um, I've been in this industry for like since 2017 as a like investor. So basically, I've seen the previous crash. I think that crash was actually even worse for sentiments as compared with this. Um, in this current crash, you still do see quite a bit of um, investment activity, even though the, the investment activity has, has dropped. You still see uh, builders sticking around. 
um, you still see a lot of uh, improvements to the underlying infrastructure. So I think today or tomorrow, the, the, there will be like a new uh, Ethereum upgrade as mm -hmm. well. So basically, people are still building on top of it. Um, and it's not it's not time to call for it to waste time to go for watching that stream. I think it's going to be who's got the longest runway, right? Exactly. So who's, who, who's going to be around for 18, 24 months, right? Yeah. So those people that have got potentially six to nine months of runway are probably looking to you know, slim down a little bit and make sure that they can weather this storm exactly. because a lot of the VCs are just not writing checks at the moment because yeah. it's such an uncertain market. And so that means some cost cutting across the board, which inevitably hits people. Right. I think this layoff hits the tech industry the most, right? Um, in terms of the traditional financial market, you're, you've got your bank, tech, uh, tech giants, they all got their layoffs. But I think where we have that kind of silver lining within this industry is that, like you mentioned, we are very much like a close-knitted industry. Everything is being shared, that kind of trans, uh, transparency information across the, the industry is very much different because we are so young in that sense. Right? Okay. So having that kind of opportunity within Singapore as well, that's Another, another thing, right? Yeah. As compared to the other markets where it's much more developed, the, the exposure risk is much higher. So then our rate of rebound will actually be faster in that sense. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Right. Um, so, wanted to understand, right? With this kind of layoffs, people will be thinking crypto is all affecting like Supira, Conto. Does that affect you guys? I mean, people will get that kind of misconception <coughs> that you know, crypto, blockchain, they are the same thing. Yeah. Unless you really take the time to understand, you understand that it's a se separate entity, a separate use case, right? So does this uh, crypto tank cryptocurrency price affect Subira control? I think for us, it's slightly different. So that when people think about banking, uh, terms it encompasses many different things. And I think blockchain is the same. You've got many different yes. aspects to blockchain and crypto is one of them. So, you know, Contour, we're certainly very far away from the crypto space. We just use the underlying blockchain technology to bring the different parties on the network in sync. You know, we don't have a coin, we don't have any token issuances or anything like that. So whilst the technology for us was very much the right decision, we have a very different sort of recruitment policy and the type of people we attract. We're very much focused on sort of enterprise technology. We sell to banks, we sell to big corporates. They're very much focused on security, data privacy. That means for us, the innovation cycles are slightly slower because we have to go at the pace that our customers can accept. Whereas I think in the sort of more crypto space, things are moving a lot quicker and it's much more exciting. And that does attract a different type of person. So historically, we haven't been sort of affected by the layoffs so much because we are more enterprise focused and we operate a little bit slower. But I think in the crypto space, obviously, it's been a bit different. Yeah, so Subera so is right smack in the crypto space. Um, our main clients are those that are crypto natives. They, they have customers that want to pay with crypto. Um, but currently, because of the current fraud, they can't do it. For example, we have Delphi, Nansen that want to accept crypto on for subscription, they can't do it right now with um, private commerce. Yeah, customers have to pay them manually every month. Think about that. Think about the amount of churn that they have to go through with that. So that's what we try and solve. And of course, the current market downturn would definitely take a hit on our client profile. Um, they probably would be experiencing like a drop in their subscriber count. Um, the interest would drop, definitely. But um, as I said before, it's 
basically crypto is a cyclical business. Um, from December to now February, the prices rebounded like probably thirty percent, and now the sentiments are sort of like positive again. It's so ridiculous, like over it's it's so bipolar. It swings left and right everywhere. But uh, for us, what we can do is basically utilize what we have for our runway, uh, investors' uh, money to basically build as much infra and build as much uh, product as possible, so that we are ready when the market uh, eventually turns, and it will turn. So so. Interest comes back really fast, like a tsunami comes really, really fast. Yeah. I think what people often forget, or rather the term crypto, or rather blockchain, is very much linked to the volatility, right? Prices of Bitcoin. Yeah. But what they actually forget is that Bitcoin actually follows quite akin to S&P 500, which is the traditional markets, right? So as much as, let's say, Bitcoin has been up uh, 30% at the time of filming, right? <laughs> Traditional markets have been uh, like let's say meta. So it's no, it's been up uh, since yesterday because Jerome right. Powell announced a twenty-five uh, EPS hike uh, as this assuring to the investors in a sense. Not sure why is that assuring, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks really Smiley. weird, right? Yeah. But yeah. So wanted to understand as well, Supira being a startup. What are the qualities that you look out for in terms of hiring candidates? Mm, um. I guess the main traits they're looking out for um, is someone that is able to work in a very ambiguous environment, someone that um, are able to um, think outside the box in terms of what they have to do. Because in the startup, everything is unordered. It's you, you are basically your department. For, for example, for myself, I'm my department, I'm like HR, finance, I'm everything, <laughs> office management as well. So, um, and, and these are things that you probably would not have touched in your previous roles. But you need to have the correct um, kind of personal attribute, the kind of intrinsic motivation to, 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 to learn and to find out how to get things done, right? And fast. So um, someone that's able to work in a very ambiguous environment, someone that's confident <laughs> in their own abilities to learn, and someone that has the intrinsic desire to, in a sense, make it. Mm-hmm. So the whole perk of a startup is you get uh, ownership of your in a sense, a small part of the company you get through ownership as opposed to working with a traditional company, just working for a salary and you're hoping to get fired and they lay off. So for, for a startup, if you, you, need, you need basically a different kind of mindset. You can't just want to work 9 to 6 and go home and enjoy all of your life. You, you need to think like, how can I improve on the product? How can I improve on the, the marketing, etc. So um, yeah, that's the kind of client, uh, the candidate profile they're working at. And of course, you need to have a bit of technical skills to back it up as well. Um, sometimes we, we see a lot of people that are in the startup space, but um, they have been jumping around startups. Um, and, and it doesn't really make sense because each startup that they join, the startup dies afterwards. So, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird, weird scenario over there. So basically, um, someone, I said, um, startups that, uh, candidates that are, have a real interest in working in a startup as well. That's, that's a key criteria. Right. I mean, like with startup fintech, a lot of these candidates have to realize that you have to have the skin in the game. Yes. Right. It's more than just your regular companies working nine to six and then you plug off. Right. Because the risk reward here is also great. Yeah. As a startup, you can grow exponentially as compared to your traditional companies as well. That's where the gains come in, right? Yeah. And having that kind of mentality <laughs> that it is your own company, your own baby as well. It really helps each other to progress to the next level, right? 
So for Ponto, you mentioned you are dealing with enterprise uh, clients as well, right? Would you say they are akin to the staff, given that you know probably the setup uh, that you have at Ponto is a bit different from Supera? Yeah, it's a little bit. So I think, you know, I'd echo all of that around, you know, the need to sort of believe in what the startup's vision is, uh, the need to take ownership. Again, when you're working in a very small company, you know, you have multiple hats, right? One day I'm fixing the printer, the next day I'm talking to executives, right? So you have to make sure that you're comfortable with that ambiguity. But at the same time, if you're sort of pre-production of a startup, you can move fast and build things. Once you go into production, that's when you've got to start putting in processes, etc. So that's actually a lot of time where people who join a startup Think, well, I didn't come here to, to do this. I just want to move fast and code things all day. So there is sort of a different phase to the company, I would say, as you sort of transition into production around operations, support, custom service, those types of things. But for our industry as well, because we talk to banks and MNCs and enterprise finance needs, our sales teams and our sort of our operations team need to be able to speak the language of those people. So we typically hire from people that have been from commodity trading firms, banks, who have sort of maybe got bored with a sort of nine to five type job, <laughs> want to do something more innovative, and therefore willing to sort of maybe even take a step down and sort of join that fintech and join us for the ride. And for some people, it works really well. It's like, yes, this is what I was meant to be doing in this bank. I've just been stifled. And for others, they don't like it and they want to go back into their comfort zone, and that's fine, right? You sort of agree to you know, say goodbye and leave on happy terms. But uh, it, it does take a slightly different type of individual, I think, to sort of live with that uncertainty. As you talk about funding and fundraising, and people think, oh, you've only got six months of runway left or nine months, but you're in a funding cycle, and you know, you know that's absolutely fine. For some people, that creates a little bit of ambiguity and sort of risk they're not willing to have. And I believe with uh, candidates jumping into the fintech or blockchain space one year ago, right, they can be very enthusiastic about it. As compared to now, you know, they might change their tune like fintech, uh, blockchain. You know, I'm not too pre keen. That's not a risk that I want to take at this point in time where the market is quite unstable. Yeah, right? it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I mean, we've you know, we've been in Singapore now for about three years. I think we incorporated the day that China announced COVID. So oh, two of those well, two of those three years have been in lockdown or in groups of one or two or three. So I think it was about 19, 20 months before we sort of had everyone in the same room at some point. So it's been a, it's been a real challenge for us, but coming back to sort of the point around attracting people, uh, again, you know, we, we have to sort of like market ourselves and that's really tough. And that's where people like yourselves really help, right? Being able to say, look, there is this exciting fintech. It's not a bank company, you would have never heard of them. <laughs> And for us, you know, when we're, especially in Singapore, where you've got a huge number of fintechs all trying to attract the same handful of graduates that come out of university every year, and you're up against the Metas and the Googles and the Microsofts, it is a challenge for us, absolutely. And then sort of, you know, market sentiment about what blockchain is doing, even though it has nothing to do with us, just say, okay, maybe I'll go into more traditional insurance or banking. Right. And, then, and then they're lost to the machine. Right. On top of what uh, Aaron has faced, what are the other key challenges that you're facing in hiring in Tetsubira? I guess um, in the more, because we operate more closely towards the Web3 space and in Web3, there is this um, trend towards anonymity. So you can be anonymous and you can work um, from anywhere in the world for a remote company. And some of these anonymous don't even show their faces. So you can, you can imagine how hard it is when you are trying to hire. So I've gotten some uh, interviews uh, where, where throughout the interview, 
get this suspicious feeling that this person is basically a North Korean spy. And not even joking. So, um, one particular experience was when I interviewed a, uh, a guy that was based, according to him, based in Canada. And he actually lived and worked in Singapore, even studied in Singapore, in NTU. So I was interested like, in, in his experience in Singapore, right? So I asked him, like, um, uh, so where do you live in Singapore? Couldn't answer. So uh, then I got a bit suspicious. So I asked him, where is NTU? He said it was near the port. So <laughs> I have never in my life heard of anyone describe anywhere in Singapore as being near the port. So just sell, sell these kind of alarm bells. And it's quite a common occurrence. Like we've probably gotten quite a few resumes, probably four or five resumes that are of this kind of suspicious profile. And when, they, when you speak to them, their English is really terrible. That's not, they're not native or they have not learned throughout their schooling years. So um, yeah, that's one very, very big challenge for Web3 as well. Another, another challenge, of course, is to find the person with the right skill set. And um, because given that the Web3 space or the crypto space, the industry is really, really nascent, um, the technical skills that uh, they may be working with, um, for example, Solidity hasn't been around for many years, maybe from 2015, to find someone with like five years experience in Solidity, not possible. But, but it, uh, the thing is, it's really hard to filter basis on these traditional metrics, which you would utilize in your, in your previous companies, whereby you, you can filter out by experience. But here you're filtering out by, say, their portfolio, their profile. And the thing is, portfolio and profiles can be fake. Yes. So it's, it gets really, really challenging and exhausting to basically filter all these candidates out. Right. Yeah. I've been here at my time at Evolution Recruitment, being in the blockchain space. I've actually experienced a fair share of candidates <laughs> who have faked their way through. And I think the worst experience that I've ever had is having this candidate say, you live in Singapore. So over here, we have to do our due diligence as well. You have to, con uh, you have to take the NRIC number of candidates if you want to process it to clients like yourself because we get quarterly audits by MOM. And then, so this candidate was telling me his NRIC number which is less than one digit less, <laughs> right? And then I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And then he said, oh, all right, I'm in a meeting right now. Let me uh, show the email across. And then he sends over his NRIC, right, a soft copy, and it was edited. You know why? How, how do I know that? Because we have our full barcode on top. Like, let's say we start with the year S9 something, right? That has to be the same as the year that you are born in. It's different. It's completely different. He was born in like 1992 when at the top he says 93. Oh, yeah, let's tell to his side. Maybe we shouldn't be sharing on the podcast <laughs> in case people are watching. I mean, even if they know, that's just one of the ways, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you, even if you can fake through me, but you, can fake, you can't fake through the job, right? Yeah. You've got your duration period as well. well. You can't do the job. But the thing is, they do have the technical skills. So right. we were curious. So we conducted some, some tests with them and they could answer all the technical tests really, really well. Like and it was really, yeah, like coding. It, it was really, really like proper, like they didn't know what they're doing. Right. So we were, we were thinking like maybe they will, they will probably go for a few few months to really gain your trust and probably insert some malicious code to drain. Because if you're working on a DeFi protocol, you're getting people's money. So it's a lot easier to, to, to drain, drain more from there. So yeah, that's the... Really, really tricky part of opening directory, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why yeah, I've got to do my due diligence before yes. I send up products to my clients as well, right? So, 
apart from hiring, let's talk about retaining your employees, right? I mean, having that kind of transparency is very helpful. Is that something that you guys practice with your employees as well? Or what other things do you guys instill to you know, keep the company together? Aaron? Yeah, so I think we sort of mentioned around joining startups, there is the risk reward profile, right? So, you know, the ability for employees ship in the company. So there's generally like an option program that employees will expect coming into a startup. And obviously they can be very lucrative if you continue to be very successful and you sort of IPO at some point. So I think having that sort of long-term incentive plan, either share options or some sort of option program is key. Secondly, now obviously post-COVID, it's flexibility in terms of where you work, how you work, right? So we have hybrid working, we have people in the office, out the office. Uh, we were just discussing before the podcast, we're just moving into a new office that's got a lot more collaboration space. So a lot less desks, but more space to sort of whiteboard, do those sort of design thinking sessions. Because when people are in the office, that's when they do want to collaborate with their peers and their teams, come up with new designs and potentially go back home works, you know, especially engineers want to sort of work at home on their own desks doing their coding. So offering that flexibility, I think is key. And then it's just about, you know, doing the sensible things, I think that's employees should do, you know, just providing perks, making it a fun place to work. And I think having a sense of sort of open leadership is key. You know, when you when you start a startup, you're in control. If there's policies or processes or like a bad vibe, that's our fault, right? So there's no one else to blame at a startup other than yourselves. So we, we try and spend a lot of time thinking about what's the sort of culture of the organization, how do we grow that? As I mentioned, COVID is going to be a huge challenge for that, not having everyone in the office, not creating that culture. So we do focus a lot on trying to make sure that's positive for everyone who comes in. And obviously, you know, empowering people when they do come in. You know, yes, this is your primary job, but there's a hundred other problems that we've got in this company. Which ones do you want to go and solve? And some people like that challenge. That's interesting. What about yourself, Jim? I think Aaron covered most of the points that I already covered. Um, basically, I, I agree with all the points, essentially. You basically have to make the workplace enjoyable one and really uh, work towards how your team function and uh, make it as fine as possible. So one, some initiative that we have in our company is for some currently we are doing a 3 day hackathon. So we, we, are, we have like internal crisis and basically we we our inputs for our own choosing with like a goal to present and do a demo tomorrow. So currently I'm on a tight time timeline. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's this kind of uh, initiative that keeps the workplace fine, interesting and uh, stimulate them uh, enough. Because day to day if you're just doing programming, coding, marketing, it gets really dull for a while. And um, it's all these kind of uh, exciting little perks that we, we do. Um, additionally, we are also very open with our employees. Uh, we do weekly town halls. So we, um, that's where, where employees can share what they have been doing the entire week, what um, they've achieved by the blockers, that's where the CEO and CEO and can share what their, their thoughts around the future, the runway, the financials, uh, what investors are talking about, what new customers are doing, uh, talking with. So it creates a sort of, um, basically this open share of information creates a sort of ownership of the company. company. Yeah. Right. And then we touch about work from home, work in office a bit, right? I know it's been a while, but you know, the UK side, they wanted to implement a four-day work week. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's going to work in the Singapore market? I think if you would have asked me this question sort of four years ago, I probably would have said it's a possibility. I think now with hybrid working sort of embedded in, in, in the culture, I think we've given people the flexibility that they need if you need to take 
afternoon off because you've got appointments, etc. Previously, that would have meant taking leave. Now people just sort of build their day around that. So I don't think there's necessarily the need to dedicate a whole day for that now. Uh, and especially, again, it's not just what you would do here, it's what the globe does. Our customers are still going to expect 24-7-365 support. So, you know, we'd still have to have operations teams, potentially salespeople working, uh, then they're going to need finance support, then they might need IT support, and it scales down. So even if you've got sort of one person working, there's the whole team that sort of supports that person that needs to be there. So I think it's going to be a challenge, unless it's something that's on global government that we don't have mandate, I think it's going to continue to be. You know, if you look at what's happening sort of the Middle East where, you know, they didn't work Fridays and they have worked Saturdays, you know, they've now shifted that to try and be a bit more competitive, right? So I think it's very diff difficult to move away from sort of the global norm right, of Monday to Friday. Yeah, totally agree. So um, I guess work has sort of evolved from being um, you having to be at your desk um, to show the FaceTime to something of the uh, hybrid uh, model actually helping that to, to, to basically you are judged based your performance, your output, instead of how many hours you spend in the office. And many, many companies, successful companies, don't even have an uh, office. Uh, so, so for example, one of them that we really admire in the space in Nansen, they, they are they're situated everywhere and their employees can basically choose to work in any country that they choose for up to maybe three or four months it's because of tax reasons. So, um, yeah, so the thing is, I think work evolved far along such that you don't really need government to enforce like a set rule. Um, if the market requires affordable work, every, all companies will basically work towards that possibility. And um, if not, I think this, this current situation, this current equilibrium would continue. And companies that are demanding for five days or more would probably lose out because of the hunt of talent. Those people are offering more flexible working arrangement, um, judging basis of performance, are likely going to succeed and compete all these other companies in the future. On L2, you can work on DJM farms, a lot of stuff. For us, um, personally, why we chose to work in payments is we believe in the potential for crypto as a payments. Uh, as in underlying payments processor, and it just that does make sense for everything to be composed for each other without having to rely on traditional banking rails that, as you would know, it's really, really old and they don't speak each other. It's really weird. Like, was so sweet. Yeah. yeah. So, um, how do they decide on which one they, they, they want to work with? I, I guess it's to really take a step at uh, crypto. Don't, don't, don't really be afraid. Uh, maybe try to do your own. Um, um, research on what are the upcoming exciting projects out there. Uh, maybe have your skin in the game, try out some DeFi protocols. Maybe not the centralized protocols, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> that. But DeFi protocols definitely, because um, it's really interesting how people are getting around the fact that you do not need to have a central authority to basically be able to transact and trade freely with each other. And everything is uh, in, in code and everything is shared openly. You can basically, if you know how to read the code, you can inspect it, you can understand how the flow is done, everything. So um, that's where um, most of the people that I know, they are interested and um, um, that's where they got started in it. For myself, I got started because um, I, I, I like high-risk trading initially. So, <laughs> so crypto was like the, the primary, you know, uh, because it's so volatile, right? You can do long, you can do short, you can do whatever thing you want. Um, and, and the other rules are outside. So that's where my uh, interest peaked. And um, 
after afterwards when I actually dug further into this rabbit hole, um, you basically learn that the underlying technology actually really makes sense. So I was just telling Aaron just now before the call, before this uh, podcast, that I was previously in a, a commerce firm. I, I even worked for I think eight months in trade finance. So I understand his whole problem so well. And <laughs> and, and I was experiencing it like because of DLs, people will pay unnecessary five years of financing. That's like probably 20, 30 K uh, out of pocket for them and for the company as well. And it's so inefficient because of all these old paper trails that has to be done. For example, in the, the financing world, they are still relying on paper DLs. And if you do not have the paper DL, field dating, you probably uh, cannot instruct the captain to release the good. And the problem is the ship will have to sit at the port for like five days, which is ridiculous with the amount of cost that, it, that is involved. With blockchain, you have instant, you can basically instant ver- instantly verify that information is true. And uh, the the goods can be released like price earlier, which is so much cost savings. But the fact that um every, the things have been done this way, um like throughout the ages, like maybe probably for like for 200 years. <laughs> Um, basically resulted in us being in these spaces where things people don't really want to move in the traditional industry and that's where uh, people in the crypto world or someone that is thinking out of the box in, in the traditional industry would be able to implement some blockchain related technologies. So I guess you can always think of how you can extend all these um, technologies into your own workplace and that's where you can actually start to explore the, the world of blockchain. I'm really thankful for the great sales pitch there. That, that's perfect. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, coming back to what people, you know, what do they, what do people want to do? How do they get into this? I think, you know, don't chase the tech for tech's sake, right? I think is key. Think about the long-term viability of the problem you're trying to solve. Some of the businesses out there are quite nefarious. They're out there to make a quick buck. So you sort of do have to, you know, think if you're thinking about joining the company, speak to the people, understand the long-term viability, where's the funding, what problem you're trying to solve. If the problem is just to raise a bunch of money, rock someone and run away, right? Maybe maybe that's not the right organization to join. So I think it, it's do your research on both the technology and the company. But I think the key thing is just to experiment. You know, all of these projects are open source. They're all public. You can go and read the code. There's never been a time where there's been so much free resources available for you to just learn whatever tech you need to do. So when people come and say, oh, I don't know something, that, that's your own fault, right? There's so much stuff out there. Go ask ChatGPT how to do something. I'm sure it will explain it very clearly. So I think the onus is on the individual really to sort of learn what they need to do and then present themselves with their portfolio to an organization. And what's your personal story getting into this space? Is it the same DGEN trading? <laughs> no, no, I, I managed to stay away from that. Although I did get burnt a few times recently by, you know, I'm sure we all know what's happened there. So, no, my background has always been in sort of like the more traditional banking, project management, sort of uh, technology aspects. And then I was I was working in uh, a few banks here uh, and sort of just got bored with uh, the pace of delivery. Uh, so I've always wanted to join a startup and then I ended up working for R3 here in Singapore, which is sort of enterprise blockchain company. And what they've done is they built, they built Corda, which is used by a huge number of different regulated entities to sort of bring different parties in sync. And then one of the projects I was running there was a project to sort of digitize trade finance. And we were running as a project at the time as a proof of concept and then it got such good traction, market feedback, a lot of the sort of ecosystem said, yes, you need to do this. But then the only way to do that really was to sort of create a spin-off and actually do this ourselves. So we then got investment from sort of the world's largest trade finance banks that finally came together because again, with all of these types of sort of blockchain applications, it's about the network play, right? And the 
hadn't been a impetus for these organizations to ever work together. They were all sort of trying to come at the problem differently and they, they, they all wanted to own the end state, which is never really going to work, right? So sort of blockchain was a really good way of bringing these organizations together and say, let's co-own the solution together. So it came at it from a slightly different angle, but ultimately, you know, it's all about bringing the network and building the network. And for us, it's been, it's been a journey. And for both of you, it sounds like it's the underlying tech behind blockchain that got you guys into the space. And that's why you're bullish about this space as well, right? Is there any other factors that why you guys are bullish about this space as well? Or yeah, I think it's it's the people, right? So it, it's a nascent technology with a lot of nascent problems, which means it attracts the brightest, most curious minds, right? It's the same what's happening in AI, right? You've got the best people wanting to solve some of the most complex problems. And if you go into sort of more traditional banking type organizations, they don't move quickly, right? They've got the status quo, it's BAU operations. And so 